it's great that we were talking about art um, in the announcements because I think one of the beautiful things that art does for us is that uh, it incarnates, it makes physical the things that are so difficult for us to say or understand and it gives us a way of engaging with it um, that's not just tactile because, uh, because sometimes you can touch it or visual but actually visceral as well because I think all of us when we encounter beautiful art and I realize the standards for beautiful art may vary a great deal including some art that in some ways is very ugly but powerful can be beautiful in its own way but when you encounter art that's powerful that's real that works something in your gut moves um, and then if you're like me when you see beautiful art you want to talk about it with someone after you've had a chance to process it because I'm an introvert so I don't want to talk right away but I, I want to sit and absorb then all of a sudden I want to go did you see that do you look at what's there right and the beautiful thing about art is that uh, as I think Makoto was trying to demonstrate uh, how do you sum up the beauty and the majesty of the Gospel of John or the directness of the Gospel of Mark in a way that people can engage with all at one moment and part of what Makoto does with his art is that um, he makes it visible so that we have some way of beginning to express what's inexpressible to us right so thank you for supporting uh, his work with the international arts movement it's a great work in New York City it's literally changing the conversation uh, that artists are having in the city and allowing Christians to engage uh, not furtively or quietly but boldly it's actually that issue of in incarnational um, embodiment that I want to spend our time on today as you look at the passage from 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 8, and 17 through 22. It's a funny section of scripture. I, I don't think I've ever been asked to preach on the widows and what to do with them. And in some ways, right, that's the beauty of working through a book as well as using a lectionary, that you're forced to engage with those passages that you normally wouldn't, that you think, eh, we don't need to worry so much about the widows. At least for now, there's Social Security and a whole bunch of other things to take care of them. But I was reflecting um, on what Paul was trying to get at with Timothy, which is that group of people that you'll be ministering to, Timothy, are a strange, delightful, contentious, awkward group of people known as the church. And I want you to know about them and how to think about them well. As I think about church, and I have lots of opportunities to think about church and to be with churches, uh, including um, you all here at CBC, I think of a friend of mine named Nicole. Nicole's on staff with InterVarsity. She's a single woman in her um, probably mid to late 30s now. Uh, she lives in very rural western New York. Um, her town recently installed its second traffic light to much disagreement on how it was going to destroy the character of their town. Um, it's an hour south of Rochester, about an hour and a half southeast of Buffalo. It's, it's, it's in the middle of nowhere. For some people, it's delightful. Every time I, I, visited, I visited her there several times since I was her supervisor for a number of years, and I just thought, no way. Just no way. And we kept urging, Cole, have you thought about moving closer to Rochester? She's the primary staff worker at the Rochester Institute of Technology. There are about 120 students there. She's there five days a week. She's often there early in the morning. She'll stay to 7 or 10 at night. And then she needs to make um, an hour-plus drive back home on very unlit, windy um, country roads through the Rochester snow. 
And we said, why don't you move closer to the city? Now, part of it is that she doesn't have sufficient support to get there, but she said, I couldn't leave my church. Now, I'm curious when I said that, how many of you thought, well, I could totally understand that. And for how many of the rest of us, we thought, what would that have to do with anything? You can always find another church, right? There's something about how you approach that question that might give you a glimpse of how you think of the body that we call the church. Nicole loves her church, and what I love about Nicole's church is that they love her. Like I said, Nicole is a, um, a single woman living in um, a home that is maybe two-thirds of the size of the sanctuary, if even. And Nicole tells stories like this about her congregation. She said, you know, um, a lot of the families know I work late at night, and I'm living by myself. And if any of you um, have been single longer, you remember the problem of cooking dinner for yourself. It's, it's, when you're single, it's, it's barely worth the effort sometimes. At least I found so um, when I was single. And so there's a family at church which has a casserole every Thursday. And at some point three years ago, the mother of the family said, you know, I make casserole anyways. If I just made you a small separate casserole, would you eat it? And Nicole said, absolutely. So every Sunday, as they pass the piece, they also pass a casserole. It's neatly frozen. If Nicole doesn't make a church, the family just lets, herself into, lets themselves into her house, puts it in the freezer, so Nicole knows as soon as she gets back, there's always going to be a casserole every Sunday. Another night, she was working, and she heard a knock on her door, and she turned because from her kitchen, she can turn to every part of her house, and saw a woman from her church who's carrying a bucket of cleaning supplies. And the woman said, I know you've been traveling a lot the last two weeks. I'm sure you've not had a chance to clean your bathroom. I'm just going to come clean it for you. Now, Nicole said... No, 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 you don't need to get You get your work done. You can, you're the only one who can do these kinds of things. I can do this. And I brought my own cleaning supplies. You don't even need to show me what you need. And she just went in and cleaned her house and cleaned the bathroom. Four months later, Nicole had been intending to replace the cabinets in her kitchen. And Nicole's very handy. As, um, and so she was about to do it, but you know, had never quite gotten around to it. All of a sudden, one Saturday, um, a father, two sons, and another family showed up at her door and said, we need you to get out of your house. We're going to take down your cabinets and put up your new ones. It may take us two weeks, but we're going to get it done for you. And Nicole said, what's great about Nicole, she just took, accepted and said, okay. <laughs> and she just left her house. They tore down her cabinets and put them all back up. When we were at National Staff Conference um, three years ago, we got a phone call in the middle uh, about 8 o'clock at night it was Nicole's dad. He said, Nicole, I have really bad news. It's been so cold, a water pipe in your ceiling burst. Your house is flooded. And Nicole said, well, how flooded? And he said, well, there were several feet of water in it. Everything, everything is gone. And she said, okay. She said, do you want me to come home? He said, there's no point. A day or two won't matter. And so she stayed with the staff community. We prayed for her. She was actually sublimely unconcerned. And we're like, are you sure you don't want to go home? We'll pay for it. And he said, the house is underwater. It's frozen by now. It's Rochester in January. Why go home? It will be wet today. It will be wet in two days. Nothing will change. There's nothing salvageable. My church has already been through it. They've taken anything they could. And the church jumped in and stepped in to help her. When I think about church, I think about Nicole's church, and I understand why she would not want to move. It's this kind of context, I think, that you need to understand when you think about 1 Timothy 5. 
1 through 8. Here's the context of 1 Timothy 4, because I understand we haven't gone through that yet as a church, that Timothy's a younger man who's been sent by Paul to take oversight of a group of churches, which, as you have been learning as you've been walking through it, has been a pretty contentious group of people. False teaching has come in and eroded some gospel foundations, and so Paul's had to exhort Timothy to guard the truth, to make sure that things are being taught well. Um, and so Timothy is told in chapter 4, really, watch your example and be a model of Christ-likeness, which is kind of the first five or so verses. Um, remember the authority with which you come, Timothy. Preach the scriptures well, in verses 6 through 10. And don't be afraid to be a leader, Timothy. Don't let anyone despise your youth, because you were called to this. God has commissioned you to this. The church has recognized this. And if you live with integrity, unlike the false teachers that we were talking about just earlier in this, you're going to do fine, and the grace of God is going to be, um, be a blessing to that church, in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 4. Now, think about what this means for Timothy. You're a young, gifted leader coming into a church which has really struggled over the past several years, which is why you're being sent there. And if you're going to do your pastoral work well, you're going to enter into deep relationships, right, with people of both genders as well as of all ages. So how will this young man, this young minister, work with, minister to, and take leadership in such great diversity? And what Paul reminds Timothy beginning at uh, the beginning of chapter 5 is this. Understand that these people at the church, these fellow disciples of yours, are family. They need to be understood as family. They need to be treated as family. And any family member needs to be treated as a fellow disciple. So look again at verses uh, 1 through 2. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, Paul writes, but exhort him as if he were your father which is interesting. I don't know how many of us exhort our fathers uh, very often. But treat younger men as your brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul sets up a context for think, rethinking the relationships at a church. Now, I suspect all of us are overly familiar with the concept of the church family, right? We use the term very casually. We toss it around very frequently. Um, the church family this, we have our family picnics, which may mean you bring your family, but it also talks about being a family together. <clears throat> the language is so common that in some ways it almost has very little meaning. But think about what a radical reordering, reordering ordering of relationships that this really implies if you were to use the language of family with one another. Family was the most basic, fundamental, important social unit um, to people in Paul's time, whether you were Jewish or Greek or Roman. It defined your identities. It claimed your loyalties, family above all. And Paul describes the relationship of the people in the church through a family metaphor. Every one of you who are older, every one of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, should be like a father to me. Actually, Paul doesn't even use the simile, right, like or as. He's actually saying, is a father to you. Every older woman is as if she were a mother to you. Every younger man, as if he were your own brother. Every younger woman, as if she were your own sister. Think about what this would do in a church divided between Jews and Greeks. I'm a Jew of the Jews, and yet you tell me that this Gentile is really my father? This formerly pagan woman is my sister? Think about what it meant for patrician, upper-class people to be worshiping with their own slaves. I own you, and yet you're like my mother. 
You own me, you could sentence me to death on a whim. And you were a brother to me. Think of how profound that would be to the early church. Roman citizens looking at barbarians, anybody who wasn't a Roman, who wasn't their equal, who had none of the political rights, you are as deeply related to me and I must be as committed to you as if we shared the same mother and father. Paul is suggesting that there's this radical re-understanding of what it means to be a family together. It's not just a term we talk about so that this church should be this really warm, comfortable place if family was that for you. Um, it's not just a place where they can't turn you away. It means fundamentally we are to be as committed to the other believers here at the church as we would anybody related to us by flesh and blood. That's what's really the context behind all of the instructions about how to care for widows. It's a little unusual because we don't talk about this much, largely because the state has taken that burden off of us and because our families and between insurance and pensions, we often assume that people have been taken care of. But read again what Paul seems to be saying in verses 3 through 8. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And then he goes on to explain why family members should take care of the widows uh, more intentionally. The family relationship of the church sets up mutual obligations that we have for one another. And if, fam if fellow disciples are family, it means we have to support them. And so Paul just assumes if there's a widow in the congregation, the rest of the congregation will sacrifice in order to ensure that that widow is properly taken care of. Right? That was the fundamental problem um, that emerged in Acts 6 when the Hebraic Jews, those who lived in Palestine, were suddenly confronted with the problem of how do we care for all these Grecian Jews who used to live in the diaspora around the rest of the Roman Empire and have come back as retirees because they want to die in Jerusalem, but now they're separated from family who used to support them. They have no means of livelihood there. What should we do? And so the early church used to take a collection and ensure that they got fed, but there was some bias in the church because the Hebraic Jews who were larger in number and local to the area never seemed to take care of the Grecian Jewish widows as well. But the assumption, you'll note, is that when there were people in need at the church, the church took care of them because they were family. It was more than just, I'll pray for you. It was more than just, I'll invite you over for a meal once a month to ensure that you aren't lonely or visit you um, in your retirement community or pray for you up from the pulpit. It was every practical physical need. We will take care of you just as if you were my own mother in that situation. I will do for you what your own children, if you had any, cannot do for you right now. It's startling, isn't it? But if we use the term family for church, it's the only possible thing that you could do. And that's why Paul says um, it's particularly important, I think he points out widows, because these were the most economically and socially vulnerable group in the ancient world. You all, I'm sure, as we walk through the Old Testament and New Testament over the years together as a congregation, remember time and time again, right, in the Old Testament laws where God specifically reserves the gleaning for the widows. And he talks about not pressing the widows and the orphan in your midst and how um, he will judge the people of Israel for not taking care of the widows and how Jesus demonstrates great compassion on widows as um, particularly the widow whose son had died, whose only security economically and socially was the fact that her son would have still been alive, takes pity on her and raises her son from the dead. Widows had no way of earning an income because women didn't work outside the home in those days. 
They had no social standing if they didn't have a husband to protect them or a son to take custody over them. And if their own family couldn't receive them back and their dowry had already been spent, as soon as your husband was dead, you would be a beggar. Or potentially, if you were younger, you would have to turn to prostitution or something else in order to put food on the table, which is probably why Paul says um, in verse uh, 6, the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, I don't think any prostitute would describe what they're doing as living for pleasure, but he's acknowledging that those widows who live in ways um, that are inappropriate for the people of God have already chosen a really bad task. The assumption is that the church will provide for their financial needs because they're family. Um, widows traditionally, like I had said before, would go to their son's household after her husband had died uh, or back to her own family, and their dowry would have supported them. But if the dowry had been spent or if it wasn't large to begin with, if her own parents and brothers were unable to care for her and she had no sons of her own, she was doomed. There would be nowhere to go. Now, what does it mean for us as a congregation if there are no widows in our midst? And I don't know us here well enough to know, to live in that way, to really begin to believe that the fundamental bond isn't biology, but faith. I think of an article I read on CNN.com back in 2008. Um, they were interviewing a woman, um, uh, Iphigenia Mukantabana from um, Rwanda. Her family had largely been killed during the genocide. Um, what was interesting is um, she's a master weaver, and um, many of her uh, woven baskets can now be found at Macy's as part of a Baskets for Peace program that they were doing in order to help raise money to uh, engage the restructuring of Rwanda. But as they began to investigate her story, they were, um, they were struck that one of her partners in basket weaving was a, na a woman named um, Ifanaya Mukanindwi. Um, Ifanaya, uh, is an interesting partner for Iphigenia, in part because um, Iphigenia's uh, husband was one of the Hutus who killed most of Iphigenia's family. And um, in 1994, uh, her, her five of her children were hacked and clubbed to death by marauding Hutu militias um, and her husband. And um, Iphigenia's uh, husband has confessed to the murder. He actually, during a court proceeding, brought them to the place where he said, we had bats, we had hoes, we had machetes, and here's where we killed them all. Women and girls were raped uh, at that time. The boys were beaten and slaughtered. Uh, they told others to dig a hole, asked them to step in, and then buried them alive. When CNN asked her, so why are you teaching your basket weaving skills to this woman whose husband killed your husband and your children and other people in your family? Why are you teaching the skills to the husband who did these things, who's since uh, been forgiven? And she said, well, it was difficult to forgive at first. I honestly didn't talk to them for four years. But um, when he confessed to the village what he had done, when I prayed a long time, because I am a Christian, I realized I knew how to weave baskets. And it helped to unite the Rwandans in this area because they accepted me as a master weaver. And I couldn't say to them, I, kn I know how to weave and to support myself and make money, and I'm going to prevent you from doing the same. 
I couldn't say to them, I'm not taking your basket or I'm not helping you because you did something bad to me. In the end, as she engaged in the disciplines of prayer and forgiveness, her loyalty to her own children, her loyalty to the memory of her own husband, was trumped by her loyalty to the body of Christ and the commitment of her faith. She said in the end, um, in my heart, my children and my husband are dead. They can't come back again. So I have to get on with the others who are still here and forget what happened. Part of what Iphigenia teaches us, I think, is what Paul is getting at when he instructs families on how to care for the widows, that more important than being parents or children or grandparents and grandchildren in this congregation, we're fellow disciples. Did you notice when the scripture was being read how frequently Paul said things like, if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, for this is what's pleasing to God. A widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. <clears throat> Given these instructions to, um, sorry, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever who would know to do these things naturally. You'll notice Paul doesn't make an appeal on, look, familial piety, you owe it to your own parents. I mean, he talks about how this is appropriate to do for, in memory of your parents, but he says, um, more importantly than familial piety, more important than just appealing to Roman moral law or appeal, appealing to the Old Testament, what Paul seems to say is this. Um, the obligation of family members to care for their own neediest cases arises largely in terms of discipleship. This is what's pleasing to God. This is what will distinguish you from all of the unbelievers out there. This is the appropriate thing to do if you are a follower of Jesus. The most important relationship we have is our, with our family members is not defined by biology or defined by birth order. It's defined by discipleship. But in the end, what's really critical, according to Paul, is that my relationship to you, if you're my parent or you're my child, and we both are in the church and followers of Jesus, is that we're fellow disciples of Jesus. You see, Jesus and his kingdom have priority over every other claim, even greater than that of family. To put anything anything, including our family, above Jesus um, is to betray Jesus. It's to make a false idol out of our families. And I think as evangelicals, we're particularly prone um, to this kind of um, idolatry. Right? If you listen to Christian radio, um, I'm struck by just a quick scan of program notes how often ministries focus on your family, how many of them there are, and how critical they all think their role is, and it very well may be. But it's easy to assume that the preservation of the family was actually Jesus' greatest interest or intent. And actually, if you look throughout the Gospels, the biological family is more often described as a distraction and deterrent to actually following Jesus than it help. In fact, as far as I can tell in the Gospels at least, nowhere is the biological family described positively in the Gospels. Though good family relationships are celebrated, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, <clears throat> and pictures of Jesus' family. But imagine you live in the Middle East. You have a largely Asian view of the world. How would you relate to these kind of stories? Where a young 12-year-old Jesus actually rebukes his parents for not understanding who he is. That's pretty countercultural. Where Jesus calls James and John to follow him, and James and John leave their father in the boat with the hired help to go follow Jesus. 
every Asian, Latin American, African American parent's nightmare. You're left alone in the business with the hired help as your children had gone off. Go do something else. Jesus approaches the disciple and said, come, follow me. And the man says, my father just died. Let me bury him. And Jesus looks at him and says, let the dead bury their own dead. Any man who loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Right? Even if you have a broken relationship with your parent, you know burying them well is the one obligation that even a broken family will pull off. And Jesus goes, it's not even worth your time compared to following me. Where Jesus says, essentially in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, I didn't come to unite families. I didn't come to bring them together. I'm like a sword that's going to divide them. Because families will determine who they are and whether they're members of the family by how they relate to me. Jesus actually talks about his own family uh, in kind of this language. In Mark 3, um, Jesus is kind of um, over the top doing mission as far as his family is concerned. <clears throat> They're worried he's a little overexcited, a little overcommitted, a little um, crazy, so they come and go pick him up. And he's standing in a house filled with disciples who are listening to teach, and somebody goes, your mom is here. <laughs> and your brothers. They want to take you home. You need to eat and sleep properly. So imagine the scene. Jesus is at the front of the, the house teaching. He sees his mother in the door, kind of going, <laughs> right? Thinking that mom thought, I brought you into this world, don't me. And Jesus looks at her straight in the eye and goes, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters? Any parent knows exactly the pain Mary must have heard, felt right when she heard that language. And he says, the ones who follow the will of God are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Right? Do you see the immense distance he's opened up between him and his own family at that moment? And who he's claiming his family? Now, to be sure, Jesus demonstrates great compassion for Mary when he's dying on the cross. One of the few things that he does, well, I mean, other than dying for our sins, is make sure that Mary's taken care of by John. But in the end, what Jesus seems to say is, Biology can never take precedence over faith. One of the beautiful things I think about um, CBC is that you're very multi-generational. I love the fact that here at this congregation, um, as I've hung out a little bit, uh, their parents, their grandparents, and their children all together, and it's a great strength of the church. It's a great opportunity for the church, actually. I wonder, though, what it would mean if we really believed that the primary relationship here wasn't biological family, that my kids are here, my grandchildren are here, or that my, um, you know, people like, but that primarily we're here as disciples. What would it mean if we assumed that the youngest children here have something important to tell us about faith, and not just in an amusing anecdotal sort of way, but the lessons that they're learning in Sunday school are equally important to us as our congregational health and things that we as people who are older desperately need to learn because they too are fellow disciples of Jesus. That they too are responsible for growth and they too may have a word both of encouragement as well as rebuke, exhortation as well as challenge for us. What would it mean if we thought of ourselves in that way here? How do we assume and how do we ensure that the oldest folk in our congregation remain vital in congregational life, teaching us the lessons that only people who have stopped being productive by the ways that society might determine, or even physically viable as they look toward the end of their life? What lessons do they have to teach the rest of us about being a disciple at that end of the life, as well as the early? 
Um, I think of that often with my own children. Um, what does it mean that my primary relationship to them should be that I long to be fellow disciples with them more than I long to be a father to them? Now, I realize there's an important role fathers play, yeah, 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 um, from psychology, and it's very true. But what does it mean that my primary role in my ch child's life should be fellow disciple? That we're both under Christ's lordship, Christ's rule and command. And that my, hot, my deepest desire shouldn't be just to talk about their future and what children they may have, but how they're pursuing Jesus. I think I've said this before. I remember when um, my daughter Madeline was born, and similarly when my daughter Kirsten was born. I remember holding them in my arms, and the instinctive prayer right of every parent is to pray for their safety. And I remember thinking what a terribly selfish prayer that was. Because really, as a parent, I want their safety because I want to protect my own heart from pain. Right? I mean, I love them, but really, safety um, can be this very selfish prayer for me to pray. What did it mean to pray from the very first moment I held them? Right? As my wife is still recovering from labor, as they finish wiping the baby down, Lord, take them wherever you want. Wherever you want them to go, let me affirm that. Because true safety is a relationship with you. Everything else can be negotiated. If discipleship, if fellowship, if community is the primal relationship that we have together as a congregation and as a group of families here that changes everything, because the fellowship of believers is the most important relationship you could have. Biological DNA connects me with my family by genotype and phenotype, but when we came to Christ, a spiritual DNA was incorporated into our body which reflects a new family set of relationships and slowly is being expressed phenotypically until we look like Jesus and we increasingly look like one another as we're made into Jesus' image. Look around you. If what Paul is assuming as he writes about the care of widows is true, in fact, the most important people in your life are the people in this room right now. And you see how all of a sudden it changes the way you think about relating to other churches, about caring for people who know Jesus in other countries. How it breaks us out of the small bounds of security and safety that biology give us into the wider scope of what God is doing. It's precisely that mutuality of relationship that every disciple should be treated like they were your family and every family member is now a disciple, which I think drives Paul into that second half of the passage we are given about how do you deal with elders and how do you relate to them? It's that mutuality of relationship <clears throat> that defines that relationship as well. Uh, and I want to suggest it works in two ways, one of which is Paul's pretty upfront. We're to care for the elders in our midst. In this case, he's talking about those who teach and preach and lead administratively in the church. In this case, I suspect um, we're talking about Dick. But um, Paul is upfront and uncompromising, right? Those who've given themselves over to the leadership of the church in both preaching and teaching and administrative um, leadership and organizational care is that they deserve um, double honor. And what I think he's talking about is that um, it includes both the honorarium, a physical monetary payment, as well as the honor that's given to somebody who's in leadership. That um, as they lead under God, we follow um, joyfully and we follow carefully. Now, I don't know about you, but even as we moved into this period, I wonder if there's a little bit in your stomach or in your gut which goes, ooh, money, ministry, ministers. Just an awkward conversation. Particularly given the fact that Dick is here in the room with us. <laughs> if it makes us uncomfortable, then let me suggest it may demonstrate what a weird hold money really has in our lives and in our heart. That perhaps it's elevated a little too high 
in the way that our culture operates, that it makes money such an awkward thing. I totally recognize that church leaders have often failed around the issue of money, and often in dramatic and public ways. But our discomfort with talking about money may just reflect the idolatry that it represents to us. Because um, money, like sex and like family, um, are often too precious and too sacred for us to discuss publicly. <laughs> but part of what Jesus invites us to do is profane those things to put them in the right place. And he seems unapologetic about saying, those in your family who've chosen to do things that they only they can do for the family should be supported by the family to do those things, right? Um, if you ha uh, that's the traditional husband and wife pattern, at least until recent times. Only the wife was going to do the childbearing. Only the wife was equipped to do the childcare. So husbands, get a job so that your wife can do the things that only your wife can do. Because, right, and, uh, and that's largely true. Um, Note, I didn't say only wives are capable of house cleaning or cooking because husbands could do that if we chose to learn those skills. But that biological imperative is still there. I remember um, as a high school student, I was one of the obnoxious high school students at church who would uh, go to the congregational meetings. I would read the budget every line item. And I had questions about most of them because I didn't understand the spending priorities of our church. And I put in my sweat equity. I was there during cleanup days. I was uh, involved, highly involved in leading the youth group. So I felt like I had an opportunity to say things. And I was a member because they didn't think to put in an age limit at that point. <laughs> they did after I graduated. <laughs> um, but I remember looking at the pastor's salary at my own home church. And I remember thinking what a paltry sum of money was there. And I remember on several different occasions raising my hand and asking publicly at the annual meeting, which made the deacons, which included my dad, really delighted with me. I just said, it seems to me the pastor's salary is far below the median income of the people who attend this church. And yet, if we expect the pastor to live among us, to minister among us, and to raise a family among us, shouldn't we pay them a salary that would allow that to be possible? And you could tell people were really ruffled several uh, older members of the church said, but they're in ministry. And I remember going, but our ordination vows don't require bow poverty. I've looked through them. <laughs> I, that wasn't embraced as well. And I think because money makes us uncomfortable, our church, at least back at home, didn't deal with it well at that period in its life. But Paul seemed uncompromisingly saying, they deserve double honor. They are doing the only thing that the rest of us cannot do well. Will you then provide for them so that they can do that? And then they, in turn, can empower you to do only the things that you can do in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, and in your families. Let's be clear, though, that Paul, again, makes this mutual, right? You support them physically, but you're also supposed to care for them spiritually as fellow disciples if they fail. They're not merely just family that you support. They're disciples that you challenge and encourage. So in verses 19 through 20, he says, look, if, um, if you're going to bring um, a grievance in them, bring two people to assure that it's true, but if you find them at fault, publicly reprove them if they don't repent. That they aren't some special sacred class that you can't confront, but they too are fellow disciples. And if you've approached them and they refuse to repent and you bring your second person with you as Jesus commanded us to do and still they do not repent, then publicly reprove them just as you would reprove anybody else in the church. Because they are not above our fellow uh, path as disciples. They're actually part of it with us as well. And that's why I think Paul ends with it, um, those verses about impartiality in verses 21 through 22. As we're challenged to live out the reality of being a family together and fellow disciples together. 
whether it's people in need or people in leadership, whether male or female, right? Whether at the upper end of the age spectrum or like you, Timothy, at the lowest end of the age spectrum, all of us need to be guided by scripture and guided by Christ's leading and not misled by, well, she's a woman or he's a man or he's old or he's young. None of those are excuses. Instead, all of those are opportunities to dig deep, to be family together and disciples together. Um, I was reflecting on this talk at the end about my friend Nicole, but also about my own situation. As you know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I'm supported by churches financially and individuals financially. And then I do those things uh, that only, other, only I can do that many people can't, which is work on college and university campuses. Um, and I remember talking to somebody who um, wasn't an InterVarsity staff worker, but they said, you know, that fundraising thing, it must be so humiliating for you. Right? You have a law degree, you have an education, yet you have to go and beg to people um, whether they'll support you. And this comes up pretty frequently as I recruit people for staff. And my honest response is this. Nothing has taught me more about what it means to be part of the family of the body of Christ. That every month, retired school teachers, retired missionaries, corporate CEOs, and everybody in between sends in a few or a lot of dollars to an account, and lo and behold, a check appears in my mailbox. I can trust that the body of Christ will support me even as I do things for the body of Christ that it can't do for itself. I can rely on my family to take care of me while I go and take care of our younger, most vulnerable members in college. I love the mutual sense of the relationship because every time I get paid, I think how God humbles me and invites me to give up false notions of self, uh, uh, um, of independence and self-sufficiency. And my discipleship is deepened. So brothers and sisters, it's a funny passage, but it weirdly incarnates the hardest things for us, doesn't it? Because it says it's not enough just to think spiritually, oh, the body of Christ, how lovely. Or the family, how delightful. But it pokes and prods us to say, in a really practical way, is there somebody hungry? And are you deeply related enough to take care of it? Is there somebody suffering? Are you really family or are you going to walk away? This is my child or my parent, my friend, but more importantly, the disciples of Christ. If they need something to advance their growth in Jesus... Will I fail to offer the word of rebuke or the prayer of encouragement just because I'm feeling awkward or uncomfortable? Or do I really believe that one day, as Paul says really quite frighteningly, I think in verse 21, in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and before all of the elect angels, we will stand together as disciples. And Jesus will be unconcerned about the biological relationship and what he will say is, how did you work with one another and help one another grow? Let me pray for us. Lord, I think of um, the little I know of what the church is doing with wider welcome, and um, I'm grateful that uh, in faith and in hope, indeed, they're trying to incarnate what Scripture teaches, of creating a place where we can both be truly family to one another and to everyone else in northern Westchester County who still needs to encounter the gospel, and what it means to develop and become a group of people who live out their lives as disciples together. And so, Lord, I pray... Um, 
in the nitty gritty of uh, reconstruction and moving and um, the chaos that will be unleashed for a period of time. Would you equip uh, Community Bible Church to be truly family, to be truly disciples with one another, and then to open their doors widely enough so that the family grows and the disciples are encouraged? To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen.